I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and uh, I will be your preacher for the next uh, 40 minutes. And so sit back, relax, and uh, let's study God's Word together. You have an outline that is available for you in the bulletin, and at the very top of it, it says The Followers, because we're in a series called The Followers, and this morning, one of those followers that is a follower of Jesus Christ was John Mark. John Mark is sometimes just referred to as Mark. Sometimes you will see him referred to as John or sometimes John who is Mark. There are a variety of ways that you will see his name as we go through the text today, but don't want you to be confused. It is all about John, Mark, or Mark, as I will probably typically refer to him. As we go through the followers, we find various lessons that come out of these. These are what we call biographical lessons. They are biographical messages, biographical uh, teaching, where we take a person's life and we go through his life and we learn from him or her as we look at some of the women who are followers of Jesus as well and we learn certain things about them. For John Mark, we're going to learn that God is in the business of restoring those who fail. And if you've ever failed in life, then you know how miserable that can be. He had a point of failure, but God is the one who brought about a restoration. So if you have failed in life, you're going to be able to identify very quickly with John Mark. Now, one of the things that was intriguing to me as I did a little bit of uh, background on this is that uh, I'm very intrigued on becoming a dual citizen. I would like to become, certainly remain a citizen of the United States of America, but I would love to be a citizen of Japan. I've never been to Japan, but there are certain aspects about Japan that I find very inviting. Here is one of them. There is a word and a term, and not just curious whether any of you have heard of, heard of this, wabi-sabi. How many know wabi-sabi? All right, just a few of you. Well, you're in for a treat here. Um, wabi-sabi, as you see on this little screen, it says, the natural melancholic beauty of things imperfect and simple. Apparently in the 15th century, there was this Japanese man who was involved with making tea. And somehow he was going, I don't know if it was to his master or this person that he would go to. And the master said, I want you to clean up the garden for me. And so he went out to the garden and he completely made it pristine. It was perfect. Every plant where it should be, every weed where it shouldn't be, groomed perfectly. And then he went over to a, a tree. I think it was a cherry tree. And he shook it. And some of the colorful leaves fell to the ground. And when the master went out there and saw what he had done, and that perfect landscape, now with this debris that had fallen on it, he praised him for what he had created. And out of that environment became this thing called wabi-sabi that is still apparently prevalent. And what wabi-sabi is, what the Japanese appreciate and value, I am told, is imperfection, simplicity, authenticity. And uh, here's a couple of samples, or three samples. A garden that is sort of overgrown and overrun. A room that is worn out and tired looking and looks like it needs new plaster upon the wall. Or a piece of pottery that somebody dropped and then they just glued it back together. But that's wabi-sabi. And they value the imperfections that are revealed in these scenarios. In fact, the garden, that could be our backyard. And so all you have to do is say, you know, it looks like a jungle out there. It looks so messy. It looks like nobody keeps it up. And we just say, wabi-sabi, get with it. And so 
I'm, I'm not going to mow the lawn anymore. I'm not going to pull weeds anymore. It's wabi-sabi. But it isn't to say that we shouldn't do our best or so, sort of failing is okay. But what I appreciate about it is what somebody wrote about wabi-sabi in this way. And this will be your encouragement as it was an encouragement to me. They wrote about it in this way. Wabi-sabi, it celebrates cracks and crevices and all the other marks that time, weather, and loving use leave behind. That's a lot of our faces right there. (laughs) Through wabi-sabi, we learn to embrace liver spots, rust, frayed edges, and the march of time that they represent. Don't you feel a collective sigh of relief? Those of us with liver spots and frayed edges. Wabi-sabi is a theme that might be played out in a man by the name of John Mark in many of our lives as well. Because what God loves to do is to take those imperfections of our lives, those things that we think back in time, and boy, in high school and college, starting out marriage, 30 years into marriage, our children, our grandchildren, and we just can replay in our minds all the imperfections and the cracks and the crevices and those things that have shown the age of time in our bodies and our health and our lives and our relationships. And it just looks like it's so helpless. And yet what God loves to do is to come along and say, I'm going to make something beautiful out of the imperfections of your lives. And John Mark is going to help us to go into that realm to find the beauty of how God takes our imperfections and sort of in a spiritual way, the wabi-sabi of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the way into communion, whereas we have communion this morning. It's the wabi-sabi of the imperfections that God makes beautiful in the atonement of the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's enter into John Mark's life. The first thing that I notice about John Mark is this, that we must accept that failure may occur in some of the strongest spiritual relationships. I'm encouraged by that because I know that there's any number of us in this room that you have children, you have grandchildren, you have relationships where you thought you were doing all the right things and then all the wrong things came as a result. It can be devastating. But one thing we learn about Mark is that even in the best of families, there is failure that is likely to occur. I'm going to run through very quickly some of the elements of John Mark's life. So we're going to look at this very quickly because I want to get to the application. But here's some background to help us understand who is Mark. Mark was reared by a mother who followed Jesus Christ. She was a Christian woman, probably a wealthy Christian woman. We learn about that in Acts chapter 12. Here are the texts. I'm going to go through them very quickly. In Acts 12, 12, we read, and when he realized this, we'll get to that story, he went to the house of Mary, this is the apostle Peter, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Mark's mother was a centerpiece of believers that were committed to Jesus Christ. That's why we think it was probably a large home in Jerusalem where they could gather together. And Peter, after he got out of prison, where did he go? He goes to John Mark's home his mother's home. The story of that is in Acts chapter 12 that we're not going to take time to go through, but Mark experienced powerful answers to prayer. Acts 12, very simply put, is this. The apostle Peter is in prison. All of the godly leaders of that day were being persecuted by the higher-ups in politics. 
It's much like believers in Iran today or in other countries today. Persecuted believers. They're being persecuted there. Stephen has been put to death by the Apostle Paul, known as Saul in those days. And so it was a deadly march to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Peter is thrown in prison. Herod wants to put him to death. He wants to show that all the Christian leaders will not survive. I'm going to rule over them. And so then Peter is in prison. He isn't content. He has fallen asleep. He is so at peace with what God is doing. And the angels come, awaken him, put on your clothes, put on your coat. We're going out. And they release him. The angels miraculously release Peter from jail. Why? Because in Mary's home, John Mark's mother's home, there is a group of believers who are praying for Peter's release because he was one of the outstanding leaders. He was the Billy Graham of that day in his prime. And so they're praying for his release. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed and the angel came, released prison, uh, Peter from prison. He gets out of prison. The first place he goes, as I said, is to John Mark's mother's home. So she was a centerpiece of the Christian belief in those days. So he knocks on the door and Rhoda hears this uh, knocking on the door. She doesn't know whether she answered and she listens to the voice and says, well, that sounds a lot like Peter. It couldn't be Peter. Peter's in prison. She tells the other, you're crazy. It can't be Peter. He's in prison. We're praying for his release. And so, so Peter persists. He keeps on knocking. The great thing about perseverance is that eventually somebody answers. You keep on knocking and they finally opened up and he comes in. And perhaps that's when John Mark began this relationship with the Apostle Peter. So John Mark grew up in a home where there was dedicated followers of Jesus who believed in the power of prayer and he saw God's answer to prayer. And that's a beautiful testimony for any young man who was growing up. He was influenced then by these mature leaders in the church. The Apostle Peter we saw in Acts 12, Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas is the cousin of John Mark. We read that in Colossians 4.10. And Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, this is the Apostle Paul when he's in prison, says, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas's cousin Mark about whom you received instructions if he comes to you. The point simply here, we'll look at this later, but John Mark had a cousin named Barnabas who was one of the key leaders of the day who helped rescue the Apostle Paul when he was Saul going to Paul to become a converted follower of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was a great mentor to, to John Mark as well. And the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. And when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So he is an intern. He is going along with some of the greatest men. It would be like following Billy Graham everywhere crusade he goes to. You're sort of walking in the footsteps and watching the modeling of some of the most outstanding leaders that Christ had ever raised up for the church and the history of the church. So Mark had that mentoring going on in his life. We also see that Mark's spiritually rich life included the witness of God's power to remove evil political leaders. This is great, coming up on Tuesday as this election, but notice this, how God works. In Acts 12, on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> now no one wants a politician to die. I think. <laughs> Remove from office? Yeah. Fortunately, God is not doing that anymore. But we'd have a whole lot of very fat worms today. 
But my point is simply that Mark saw this. He saw this threat, and God divinely intervened, watched the political leader die, get eaten up by worms. I've never seen anything quite like that. Mark saw it. He was there. That's part of his rich spiritual heritage. We also see this about Mark. He learned from the strongest and the best of the biblical preachers of that day. In Acts 13, 5, and when they reached Salamis, they, that Saul before he was called Paul and Barnabas, began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues and the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. Would you love to sit in a synagogue and listen to the Apostle Paul teach unbelieving Jews? What an amazing opportunity Mark had. Few of us have opportunities to sit at the feet of someone that powerfully blessed by God with the capacity to influence non-believing Jews and then go into the Gentile population and convert them to Jesus Christ and see the power of the miracles. Mark watched God's miraculous power convert people to Jesus Christ. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's being threatened by some phony magician. So this magician comes to challenge him. And Paul says, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, this, this non-believing imposter. And uh, he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This political leader sees the miracle of God through the hand of Paul to strike blind this phony baloney magician and and John Mark is right there watching this powerful conversion he has seen the hand of God in the most powerful ways from answered prayer of Peter being released from prison to a political leader who is harassing them and threatening to take his life and God took his life out instead including this proconsul this political leader here is now finally being converted to the following of Jesus Christ John Mark was a privileged young man growing up in a very rich spiritual home, but John Mark had failure. For those of us who have been brought up in those kind of homes and those of you who have created those kinds of homes and your children aren't walking with Jesus right now, I want you to know that, yeah, we could have all been more perfect as parents for some of us, I don't want us to ever think that if I had been more perfect, then the marriage would have worked, then the children would have followed Jesus, then the grandchildren would have had a rich heritage. Even in the best conditions, failure can happen. The cracks and the crevices can be created in lives that we wished we could have avoided. I want us to have that as a blanket understanding. The second thing we learn about John Mark is this, that we painfully learn that failure can tear apart some of the most mature relationships. It is so harmful, so hurtful when failure occurs and breaks down relationships. It is a ripple effect of damage that is being sent out. So we want to, we want to pare it down. We want to keep those things from happening. We want to stay faithful to what God has called us to do because there's a ripple effect of relationships uh, like the tide eroding away people's lives. We don't have to say that, but I clearly see it. For example, let's get into John Mark again. Mark was a helper on the ministry team of Paul and Barnabas. We saw that, just brief glimpses of it. Here is where he was called out in Acts 13, 4 and 5 and being sent out by the Holy Spirit. This is a Spirit-led, commissioned 
missionary trip. They have three missionary trips. John Mark's here traveling with them. The Spirit of God has called them. And they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus is the island on which Barnabas owned land, part of his home. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews, and they also had John Mark as their helper. So this is a spirit-led called thing to do. John Mark, you're part of the team with Paul and Barnabas, greatest leaders of the day, perhaps the greatest leaders the church has ever known. And John Mark has been called by the Spirit of God to go with them, assist them and help them, be an intern. Who knows what he did? Go get a bottle of water. Who knows what he was doing? But he was there. And he's been called out by God. But the story continues. Because John Mark bailed on him. He up and quit. Mark left the outreach ministry of Paul and Barnabas in Acts, 15, uh, Acts 13, 13. Just a little bit later in that same chapter. Here's what we read. Now Paul and his companion put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John Mark left them there and returned to Jerusalem. Probably a lot of us don't know where Perga and Pamphylia is. Here you go. Pamphylia of the day, in those days, is what we call Turkey. The southern part of Turkey, right there on the coast. It's a mountainous area. It's a rough area to travel through. But for some reason, John Mark left the team. He left Paul. He left Barnabas. He says, I quit. I'm done. No more for me. No thank you. So John Mark, on his own, a young man, has to somehow figure out how to get from Turkey down to Jerusalem. This is no small feat. So he has left them. We don't know why John Mark left Paul and, and Barnabas. Why does anybody quit ministry? Why does anybody bail on what God has called them to do? It may be that John Mark, and here are the various speculations that go on, that John Mark was homesick. He missed his mother back in Jerusalem. He sort of enjoyed that little quiet episode where the believers would gather together and he was with those that love him and those who are followers of Jesus. And now he's going into this foreign territory where there's going to be all kinds of enemy and opposition. He says, I don't know that I can handle that. I want to go home. I'm a little afraid. Imagine traveling through those mountains on foot or on horse trying to traverse across some of this land. John Mark may have said, it's not for me. Some people actually think that when Barnabas, the cousin of Mark, chose Mark to be part of the team, Barnabas was sort of the lead of the team. But over time, what you notice is that Paul becomes the first name mentioned. And Barnabas becomes subservient to Paul. And some people believe that John Mark might have been just a little bit put off by the fact that no longer is my cousin the team leader. Now, Paul, of all people, is the team. Paul, the man who murdered people like Stephen, is now the team leader. When Barnabas has been this faithful, godly man, I'm not going to be part of a team where my cousin is. So it may have been, who knows, it may have been that. We don't know. Luke, who wrote Acts, did not inform us as to why. All we know is that when he left, it was a painful departure. Notice, Mark's failure hurt this team, destroyed this team, divided this team. Notice in Acts 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord. Let's see how they're doing. Let's go back. Let's tour the land. Let's go back to Pamphylia. Let's see what's going on back there. 
And so they want to have follow-up. Barnabas then wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. Barnabas is this comforter, this encourager. He is this, what you might call him a paraclete, one who comes alongside and calls to someone, and he rescues people. Beyond that, Barnabas is the cousin to Mark. And so they have this ongoing, biting relationship. John Mark has failed them. He bailed on them. But, so Barnabas says, Let, let's try John Mark again. Paul's response to that, Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So what happens? They have an argument. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. A division occurs. They can't get along with each other. So here's what we see. Because John Mark failed... This greatest team that has ever been... This is the dream team of the first century church. Paul and Barnabas. Paul, the, the clear doctrinaire, Bible teacher, gets it straight, reaches the Jewish population. He's Jewish, one of the most pedigreed leaders of the church has ever known because of the background. Philippians 3 describes how qualified and overqualified he is. Barnabas, this consoler, this comforter, this pastoral heart, a perfect balanced team. It's blown apart because John Mark has failed. And so what does Barnabas do? He takes John Mark and he travels away and Paul says, I'll have none of John Mark's life. I'm done with this guy. I have, I've, I'm rid of him. I, I want nothing to do with him. Notice how this happens. Therefore, all failure can divide relationships and appear as spiritual rebellion. And that's why we do all that we can. We, we do all that we can in our church and our passion is as the pastors and the leaders of our church. We want to repair broken relationships because we know the devastation and the pain that comes out of brokenness and failure. And it's not just those who fail. Notice, it's the ripple effect into other people's lives as well. God brought good out of that departure. I mean, He, he divided the team and they reached even new people. We're not saying God can't bring good out of failure. But we want to avoid failure. We want to avoid the fractures and the divisions and the splits and the lack of forgiveness and the failure to restore and heal. We want to avoid that. Because notice how Paul looks at this. Paul's view of John Mark is this. Paul kept insisting that they should not take him, John Mark, along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. That word desert is a very strong Greek word which means to fall away, which means to revolt. In fact, sometimes that word for desert is used to those who fall away from the faith. It's used in Hebrews 3 that way. I quote that on the, on the Digging Deeper on the back side. It's used of an individual that is no longer a follower of Jesus Christ. That, that's powerful. When Paul looks at John Mark... He sees a guy that is a spiritual failure and rejection of Jesus Christ. That's no small indictment. 
Can you imagine you're John Mark and you're hearing this great, great man, Paul, the great leader of the first century church, the author of so many books that we read in the Bible, this man who was so dedicated, and he says, do as I do, live as I live. He says this to the Philippians. However I've lived my life, you live it the same way. This man that everybody looks up to. And John Mark is called a quitter, an apostate, a failure. And it's written down in the Bible. So here we are 2,000 years later talking about it. Wouldn't you love to be in the first century church in every failure you make? Luke's over there. Let me just write that down for you. <laughs> Would you like somebody follow you around? Ooh, ooh, you shouldn't have done that. I'm going to write that down because they're going to be reading about that 2,000 years from now. Wouldn't that be a wonderful life? Well, that was John Mark's life. He travels with him everywhere and then he messes up one time. And Luke says, I, 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 I better get that. And here we are talking about it. God is an amazing God. Because He can take those of us who have the cracks and the crevices and the liver spots, spiritually speaking, of life, the failures that we go through, and the inadequacies of our lives, and the brokenness of those things that we have chosen to do that have caused so much destruction and pain, not just to me, but to others, children who have disobeyed and rebelled and the hurt to the parents, spouses that have disobeyed and rebelled and the other spouse lives with all this pain. It is so much of what our lives can become. But God has a surprise for us, as He did for John Mark. And here is where we want to land. By the grace of Christ, God loves to restore. Restoration, we know this, I want to show you how it works. Restoration is possible for any relationship or plan that fails. Uh, The grammar is not good there, so sorry about that. But for any relationship that fails, any plan that fails, any ordained by God plan, a spirit-led plan to go there, to pamphlet, it was spirit-led, and he bailed on them. So any spirit-led plan that we had or relationship that we have that fails, God can bring restoration. There are four things we learn about how God can do that and how He did do that with John Mark. Let's take a look at those lessons. First thing that God did for John Mark is this. And the first thing that God might want to do for some of us is this. You need to heal from my failure by trusting a mature family or friends, if the case might be, members that will support you. There's something here that may get biased when we look at this particular passage in Acts 15.39. But the first thing that God does is to heal the heart of John Mark. God loves people who fail. God still does. We may think He doesn't. We may think that, like Paul, they're a reprobate. They're an apostate. We, we don't want to be with them anymore. I don't know that's Paul's best day, but that's what Paul did. I, I can't have him on the team. He's just a quitter. So what God does is says, when we're... When we're victimized by our own wounds, by our own self-inflicted wounds, God is in the business of healing first. The first thing that happens, I need to heal. I need a respite. I need to stop. That's what happens here in Acts 15, 39. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him, and here's the key, and they sailed away to Cyprus. Now we, just, we might just move on to the next verse, verse 40. But he sailed away to Cyprus. 
Now, why Cyprus? Well, number one, that's Barnabas' home. Barnabas owns land in Cyprus. He donated some of that land to the mission of the first century church. The other thing about Cyprus is this. Even to this day, the Isle of Cyprus is referred to as the Happy Isle. The Happy Isle. It's sometimes called La Macarios. Whenever I teach on the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, you know, that sort of thing, blessed are the gentle. The word blessed there in the Beatitudes of, Gen- of Matthew 5 is makarios. It's a Greek word, blessed, makarios. And it's a word that means that on the Isle of Cyprus, they call it la makarios, the Isle of Cyprus, because everything that you need to live a sufficient and peaceful and tranquil life is there on the Isle of Cyprus. It's the happy isle. So in cycle babble terms, John Mark, let's go to your happy place. And that's what, you, that's what Barnabas is literally doing. Let's go to the happy place. Let's go to the Isle of Cyprus. Let's go to this luxurious, tranquil, tranquil peaceful island. I've got a resort on Cyprus that I want to take you to. And I want you to be blessed, like blessed of the Matthew 5 Beatitudes, I want you to be blessed. I want you to be content and satisfied and made well. When you and I fail, when you and I go through a turbulent brokenness of life, of relationships, job, finances, health, we need the Isle of Cyprus, figuratively speaking, or literally speaking. You know, uh, and I, I say this hesitantly, but a, a number of years ago, Calvary Church went through a difficult period of time. And I was at the forefront of a lot of that. And I heard a lot of things that were kind of hurtful, you know. And after all that was over, the elders gathered with joy in me, or with me and them from joy as well. So we'd like to give you a break. So they sent us to Hawaii. That's our Isle of Cyprus. And so our two little girls at the time, when they were so sweet and wonderful, our two, no, they're still sweet, they're still wonderful. I'm going to hear about it. It's going to be on Facebook and everything. Still love them, but they were so you know, young. And, anyways, you get it. So we got to Hawaii, and we just we had a, a blessed time just to get away, just to refresh. Now, we can't always afford to go to Cyprus or Hawaii. But we go to the place and we bring healing. We just stop. That's what Barnabas does with, with John Mark. Just, come on. Come on, let, let me put my arm around you. Let me just take you to this place. It's beautiful. It's quiet. And let's just, let's just, get, let's just let God heal your heart. That's what he does. You and I, we need that. We need those moments. Second thing that happened is that after those healing takes place, growth then begins to occur. I need to grow from my failure by learning from the godly leaders that mentor me in my faith. I'm not saying I'm going to sit there in Isle of Cyprus the rest of my life. I need to get on. I need to learn. I need to grow. So 1 Peter 5.13. Remember Peter in Acts 12, the very beginning of John Mark's life, as we note about him? It's in John Mark's mother's home where John Mark is that Peter comes after being rescued by the angels and the power of prayer to get out of prison. And there they meet each other. They get to know each other. Well, Peter in 
1 Peter 5.13, when he begins to write about his life, she who is in Babylon, probably the city of Rome, we don't know, but it's a whole other argument, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. What happens? Peter then begins to mentor Mark. He becomes like a spiritual father to him. We need people like Peter in our lives to say, you know what, I'm not going to let you do this alone. Barnabas, I understand what you're, the role you are playing. That's great. I'm going to come alongside. I'm going to pour my life into this little guy by the name of John Mark because I, I've seen that. Think about this. Why would Peter... I wish we were looked like in a discussion group right now. But why would Peter be so instrumental in helping John Mark after his failure? What about Peter qualifies Peter to be so good about that? Denied Jesus. Peter, more than anybody, knows the misery of failure. You know, John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. Well, Mark records in Mark 14 Peter's multiple failures. It wasn't just the denial of Jesus. Jesus said when they were praying, he says, I'm, I'm really distraught. Jesus, I'm, I'm really distraught over the fact that I'm going to die. Would you stay awake and pray with me? And repeatedly, Peter is falling asleep. So he's falling asleep and then he denies Jesus. What God loves to do is to take those of us who have had tough moments in life and then learn from them so that I can help the next John Mark who is going to fail. Because John Mark and Peter are not the only two people in the world that have ever failed, right? There's a lot of us in this room who have failed, and I'm the first to raise my hand. We have different degrees in different ways, but we have gone through things that God has allowed us to experience so that we can take those things now and help that next generation that needs what we learned and pass it to them. That's Peter. That's what Peter did. You and I, we need to do the same thing. Thirdly, restore after your failure by living in the grace of Jesus Christ. And here is the key for the Apostle Paul. Paul was the one that told Peter, you're an apostate. That's pretty tough language. Here's what Paul experienced and he gave to John Mark. You'll see it. Paul, when he writes in 1 Timothy to the, to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, which is in Turkey, where they were, he writes to Timothy of Ephesus these words. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ. Jesus It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. And Paul says, I'm whom I'm the foremost of all. I have done more bad things than anybody in the world has ever done. That's Paul. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience and as an example of those who would believe in Him for eternal life. He is going to show my perfect patience that He demonstrates by giving me grace and mercy because I am a failure, I have failed, I have done terrible things. The Apostle Paul has murdered dedicated people like Stephen. He has done horrid things. And Paul says, I have received the grace of God more than any person in the world because I am the world's worst sinner. And so here's the thing. Here's the application. When you and I have a John Mark in our lives and we've ragged on them, you apostate, you reject, you failure, I don't want to partner with you again. You're out of my life. 
I'm done with you. I'm moving on. Literally, Paul moves on. That's what he, Paul does. What we need to do is this. We go back to our own story. He says, God, how much grace you have given to me. How much mercy you've given to me. How many times have I failed you? And how dare I, who have received all this grace and this mercy, and in me I am demonstration of your perfect patience with me, how do I not extend it to the John Mark who has done such horrid things to me? How do I not take the grace you gave me and give it to them? Who am I to judge those who I dictate to be an apostate when I myself was the worst of the worst? For you and I, before you start judging the John Marks in the world, before you and I start picking on, putting off, rejecting, turning from those that we have deemed to be unacceptable, before you and I dare ever do that, you and I need to go back and say, but God, but for the grace of God, I would be one of those people. And how can I not with your grace give it to them? I invite you into that life. If you're still judging people like crazy, deeming them unacceptable, and you will not partner and live and love them, then how much grace has God given to you that you're holding on to that you don't deserve? Because you need to spread it as God gave it to you. And then just be patient. Be patient after a failure because it takes time to rebuild what is broken? We, we want fixes right away. I've seen any number of marriages where there's been adultery. And the adulterer, be it a man or a woman, husband or wife, says, I'm sorry, forgive me. And the other spouse says, well, I don't know. I, I want to forgive you. And then you can go through a few sessions like that. Well, I want to... And finally, the, 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 the adulterer says, well, you're just not a very forgiving person. I told you I'm sorry. What more do you want? Why won't you change? Why won't you forgive me? And, and they're being so impatient by not allowing the grace to marinate the heart that brings about the healing. Be patient. Why do I say that about John Mark? Here are some facts. When Barnabas took John Mark to Cyprus to heal the happy isle, his happy place, literally, the Blessed Isle, La Macarios, that was 50 A.D. By the time the Apostle Paul that we know about was accepting and receiving and loving and giving the grace to John Mark, we're up to 61 to 62 A.D. It could be that it took 10 years before John Mark and Paul reconciled. 10 years. Can you imagine living 10 years with that hanging over your head and Luke recorded the whole thing? That's tough. But it takes time. Be patient with the grace of God to soften the hearts of those we have wounded so that healing can take place. Heal, grow, learn, be mentored, and then allow time for the healing to take place. Finally, the last thing Paul ever wrote. These are Paul's last words of his life before he was executed. When he was in prison in 67 A.D., this is his third time, pick up Mark and bring him with you, 
for he is useful to me for service. He's useful for me for service. It took, that's 17 years after the fact. But God healed what was broken. Wabi-sabi. He took the cracks. He took the imperfections. And he began to mold them together. So we live with this statement. We need to live with the hope that God heals and restores any that turn to him. As God did that for John Mark. I invite you into that as well. In fact, there may be some of us who need to find reconciliation with someone right now, with someone in our lives. We need restoration because I have failed. I need to go to that person and apologize. Or I have been like Paul to that person where I have rejected them and I'm not open to them. And God says, but you need to give to them the grace you receive. It's a two-way street. And it may be that if you're there, God invites you into that place. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. We're going to receive communion, which means that I am in communion with the Holy God who has reconciled me, changed me, and it may be that I need to spread that reconciliation to those that are around me. So let me pray for us and give us a moment as we prepare ourselves for the elements that represent the brokenness of Jesus so that we can have healing in our hearts. Father God, I thank you that you're a mighty God who works in our lives in ways that are mysterious at times. Father, there's a lot that I don't understand why you do what you do, and yet I want to be obedient and trust you because I love you and I know you love me and you have what is best in mind. And Father, for those of us who are in this room today, we may be like Apostle Paul where I have turned my back on those who have wounded me. Or some of us may be like John Mark and we are the ones who gave the wounds of failure. But God, in both places, the grace of Jesus Christ must be sufficient and abundant. And may those of us who are like Paul extend grace. May those of us who are like John Mark come in humility and contrition. And may there be a healing, a restoration a reconciliation between relationships and with you. Father, we come to remember your son Jesus who took the fractures and the imperfections of our lives and atoned for them, covered them, and then removed them so that all things had become new. I thank you for these elements as they help us to remember your sacrifice for our lives because you sought us out even while we were yet sinners you sought us out to heal what was broken and I thank you for that grace and we live in it now in Jesus name Amen